0: As our little ones head out, thank you. We appreciate you. All right. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Acts 24, verse 1. That's on page 933 in your church Bibles. Acts 24, verse 1. As I mentioned last week, we're entering into the final phase of the Acts of the Apostles. Paul is no longer a traveling Missionary planting churches all across the Mediterranean region. He's now a prisoner making a defense of Christianity before senators, governors, kings, and eventually the Emperor of Rome. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit forward from where we left off last week, but that's only because once again, the Apostle Paul is interrupted. Uh, we mentioned that last week. Uh, he was making his defense before the, the crowd in Hebrew. And uh, he didn't get very far into his defense, because as soon as he said that he'd been given a commission by God to go to the Gentiles, the entire city went nuts, and they were trying to tear him limb from limb. Well, to help calm things down, the tribune arranged uh, for Paul to make a defense of Christianity before the Jewish Senate. Uh, But that didn't go very well either. So if if you've already opened your Bible to Acts 24, verse 1, just flip back maybe one page, or maybe it's, it's on the same page, to Acts 23, verse 6. And uh, you'll see that, again, things didn't go a whole lot better for Paul before the Jewish Senate. He's interrupted very early on in his presentation. Look at Acts 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And at that, Luke says a great dissension broke out in the Senate with one person shouting this, another person shouting that. Jump down then to Acts 23 verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So that didn't go any better. And then when the tribune learned of a plot to have Paul assassinated while he was in Roman custody in Jerusalem… He decides that a change of venue might be in order, and so he sends Paul north to Caesarea to stand trial there. And it is in Caesarea that the Apostle Paul finally, in chapter 24, gets a chance to make his defense. And at the heart of his message is an explanation of the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, which, as I mentioned, was the apologetic issue for the first several generations of the church. You have to remember that from this point on in the story, the vast majority of converts to Christianity would be not Jews, but Romans. And and so, understanding this relationship between Christianity and Judaism was extremely important. And so, Paul now begins to focus in on that. And we'll do the same. We'll zoom in on verses 14 and 15 in particular after we've read the whole story. So hopefully you have your Bibles open now to Acts 24 verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, "'Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem.'" And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say, What wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented him or should be prevented from attending to his needs after some days felix came with his wife drusilla who was jewish and he sent for paul and heard him speak about faith in christ jesus and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment felix was alarmed and said go away for the present when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So, he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's another fairly long story. And in these stories, what Luke is doing is taking us back to the fork in the river, the point at which Judaism and Christianity parted ways. And as I mentioned, that was a major, major apologetic issue. I think it would be safe to say that was the apologetic issue in the first several generations of the church. And it remained so uh, for about 300 years. And as I mentioned, from this point on in the story, the vast majority of converts to Christianity are going to be Romans, not Jews. And, and so the question on every Roman's mind was, what is it about Christianity that caused it to be rejected by the very people from which it sprang? What is Christianity? How is it different than Judaism? Judaism we know well. Judaism has, has been a feature in the Roman religious world for a very long time. But what is Christianity. And so this trial presents a perfect opportunity for the Apostle Paul to clarify those matters. On the side of the prosecution in this trial, of course, we have Ananias the high priest and his lawyer or spokesperson Tertullus. On the side of the defense, we have Paul. And sitting in judgment over the entire proceeding is the Roman governor Felix. So let's get into it. As I mentioned, we're going to zoom in on verses 14 to 15 both the prosecutor and the defense have said nice flowery things about the governor, Felix. And of course, that was common custom in the day. And having been through that, then the prosecutors make their accusation. They accuse Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple. By the way, just pause there. I've always found that to be an interesting accusation. We don't know because Luke doesn't tell us, but I can't help but wonder. Uh, The accusation is that Paul Paul brought Gentiles into the temple. Now, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, There's that, that was not what was going on at, at the time, but that was the accusation that was being made. And you wonder, am I hearing music? Are we worshiping now? Yeah. Okay. All right, what's happening back there, Brother Norm? I'll leave it to you to figure out. We could sing. Would you like me to sing? I could sing. Let's leave the singing to Pat. It's a phone. Okay, sorry about that. All right. Nobody look? Nobody think? All right. But so it says that Paul… Uh, brought a Gentile into the temple. And, of course, there's no evidence that he did that. There's no record that he did that. But you wonder if this was maybe a misunderstanding. Because what they were hearing was that Paul was bringing Gentiles into the house of God, perhaps, in a spiritual sense. That Paul, through the gospel, was bringing in Gentiles into the people of God. And so maybe in a sort of crass, overly literalistic interpretation, maybe there were Jews who were thinking that Paul was bringing Gentiles into the temple. We don't know. But that's, that's the accusation. They uh, accuse him of, of doing this. Paul defends himself. He says, that's not at all what is happening. And uh, he says, we're not a sect. We're not rabble rousers. We're not d- trying to divide anything. In fact, he says, we are following the correct version of the Jewish faith in contrast to those who are making their accusation against us. So that's the part of the speech we want to dig into. Listen to verses 14 to 15 again. Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Okay, so that's the heart of the heart of the matter. Now, as I've mentioned before, these speeches that we have recorded for us in Acts are summaries. Uh, You can read this speech by Paul in about 20 seconds. Uh, In all likelihood, he spoke for more than an hour. And so what we have really is a narrative table of contents. But what Luke records about what Paul says is extremely important. First thing we see Paul saying is that Christianity is the way, not a sect, and not a splinter. He says that in verse 14a. He says, I worship according to the way, which is not a sect, as my accusers claim. So, of course, a sect means a section, a slice. And it's usually used in a pejorative sense as though to say a faction, a splinter group. Tertullus has referred to Christianity in that way in verse 5. But Paul says, no, we're, we're not a splinter group. We're not an offshoot. We are the real deal. We are authentic Judaism. David Peterson says here, claiming to be the way. The earliest Jewish disciples were insisting that they were the true Israel, experiencing the promised blessings of the Messianic era through faith in Jesus, rather than being one of several groups within the people of God. That's incredibly important for us to understand. Christianity is not a way. It is the way. It is not one possible interpretation of Judaism, it is the correct outcome of Judaism. Now, that is the gospel that was preached by the apostles because that was the gospel that was preached by Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Brothers and sisters, think for a second about what that actually means. You know, sometimes I worry that there are verses that we love so much and we quote so frequently that we're actually incapable of hearing them. Uh, They just become part of the background noise, right? Oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his own. Oh, yes, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. We love saying that. Have we actually thought about what it means? What does it mean? For Jesus to say that he is the way, not our way, but the way. He's saying that if you want to walk in the way of faith, if you want to worship the God who is there and who speaks, if you want to be a part of the covenant community, if you want to be the chosen people, then you have to follow me. Am I overstating that? I don't think so. And and what in the world does it mean when Jesus says that he is the truth? Again, not a truth, but the truth. What does that mean? Of course, it's got to mean that he is the correct outcome of the Scriptures and the appropriate interpretive lens for reading all the Scriptures. If you read your Bible through the lens of his person and work, then you will arrive at the truth. Again, is that saying too much? I don't know how you could say anything less as a Bible reader. And, and what does it mean when Jesus says that he is the life? Well, again, I think it's rather obvious that he is saying that he is the way to eternal life. If you want to have life after death, if you want to gain entrance into the eternal kingdom, then you must go in through him. There's no other way in. I don't think that can be questioned, again, by anyone who's read the New Testament. Jesus said, I am the door. Not a window. Not a door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So this isn't some kind of weird or fringe perspective here. This is Christianity 101. Jesus is the way. He is the way that the Apostle Paul was worshiping and serving God. Jesus is the truth. He is the correct outcome of Judaism, and he is the appropriate interpretive lens for reading the entire Bible. Jesus is the life. He is the door to life beyond death. He is the access point to all the blessings of God, both now and forevermore. He is the gateway to life abundant and life eternal, and no one cometh unto the Father but by him. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So far, so good. Second thing Paul wants to affirm is that Christians worship the same God as the Jews in the Old Testament. Look again at the first half of verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Writing in the Tyndale New Testament commentary, I. Howard Marshall says here, we may perhaps paraphrase the designation here as the true way of worshiping and serving God. For the Christians believed that the God of their Jewish ancestors was being rightly worshiped by them. And that was important for Paul to affirm. He did not want his Roman judges to think that Paul was arguing for some kind of new God. He wanted to be very clear. I'm not saying that Jesus is our new God. I am saying that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who has come to make us understand more fully the God we have always worshipped, the God who is there, the God who was revealed to us in the Old Testament. And Christians would be attempting to clarify that to the Romans and to others for the next 400 years. And it wasn't always easy, in part because there were many so-called Christians who themselves did not seem to understand this. One of the earliest heresies in the Christian church was a heresy that we've come to call Marcionism. I don't know if you've heard of Marcionism. Uh, You will if you study church history. Marcion was actually the son of a pastor who was excommunicated by his father for persistent immorality. So, you know, props to that pastor, right? Uh, Probably not an easy thing to do to excommunicate your young adult son for persistent immorality, but he did it. His son, Marcion, traveled to Rome, because what do you do when you get excommunicated from church? You go to another church where they don't know you. And, uh, and so he, he went to Rome, and he got involved in the church in Rome, and he actually started a little study group, because where do all heresies begin? In an unsupervised small group. And, uh, and, and so he started a small group, and he began teaching people that actually the God of the New Testament was a different God than the God of the Old Testament he started saying that the God of the New Testament is all about love and grace. By the way, have you ever heard that before? And that he was not harsh and judgy like the God of the Old Testament. In fact, in order to sort of support this view, Marcion tried to create his own Bible. And, of course, it had no Old Testament, so we chopped that right out. And then it only had ten letters from the Apostle Paul, and one highly edited version of the Gospel of Luke. Now, interestingly, Marcion was eventually excommunicated again by the church in Rome, but his movement grew and grew and grew and continued to cause problems for Christians for the next two to 300 years. But in in actuality, it's never really gone away, has it? Marcionism raises its ugly head again and again and again over the course of Christian history. And doesn't it almost always begin with people who are sexually immoral? Right? Because, I mean, let's be honest. If, if you want to open the doors to sexual immorality, you're going to need a smaller Bible. Amen? Right? You're, you're going to have to get rid of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God is doing all the thou shalt not this and thou shalt not that, right? you got thou shalt not commit adultery. You, you, you've got you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. That's an abomination. So you're going to have to get rid of that, and you're going to have to get rid of big swaths of the, of the New Testament as well. So, so listen, brothers and sisters, be very careful. Be very wary of any so-called Christian leader who wants you to have a smaller Bible in your pocket who wants you to unhitch from the Old Testament or who wants you to only read portions of the New Testament maybe that that have been color-coded a particular way. Almost always, that is the first attack in a larger effort to mainstream sexually deviant behaviors in the church. So be on guard, right? We've, We've seen this before. The Apostle Paul wants it to be very clear right from the beginning that he wants no part of that. He wants it clear that Christianity is not some kind of attempt to create distance between itself and the Old Testament. No, 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 no. No, Paul says Christians are the ones who are worshiping the God of the Old Testament correctly. Third thing we see Paul saying here is that Christianity believes everything written in the Old Testament. Key word there, everything. See, that's the critical issue. That's, that's why Paul's speech was interrupted in the Jewish Senate. Back in Acts 23 verse 6, Luke had said, now when Paul perceived that one part one part of the Senate, the, the Sanhedrin there, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Did you catch that? When Paul perceived that one part of the Senate was made up of Sadducees and one part of Pharisees, that's When Paul said, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul went right for the divide that already existed within Judaism. There was a pre-existing debate within Judaism as to how to understand the authority of the books of the Old Testament. The Sadducees believed that the first five books, the books that we call the books of Moses, that those books were maximally authoritative, and and that you could only make a doctrine or a law if it was rooted in those five books. But the Pharisees, they were, of course, studies of the Scriptures, and they had a very high view of the Scriptures, and they believed that, that all the books of the Old Testament were authoritative. But here, here's the thing. Because the the Sadducees only believed that the first five books were authoritative. They did not actually teach a doctrine of the resurrection. Most of you will know that the, the Jewish canon, the, uh, not canon as in fire a ball at a pirate ship, but canon, C A N 1 N O N, from the Greek word kanon, which means list. So that the Jewish list of authoritative old, old Testament books, you'll often hear the Jewish canon divided into three parts uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, well, the Sadducees, again, they said that only the first part, the law, was authoritative. You could only make doctrine or laws from the first five. And so, while they they may have believed in a resurrection, they didn't teach that. It was not a doctrine for the Sadducees. Because where does that doctrine mostly get taught in the Old Testament? It gets taught in places like Job and Daniel, the Psalms, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. In other words, it gets taught in the prophets and the writings. But the Pharisees, who credited all the books of the Old Testament as authoritative, had a different perspective on the resurrection, and Paul understands that. He knows that because that's his own background, and so he puts his finger on that divide. And what he's saying here is, I am on trial today because I believe in more of the Old Testament than my Jewish accusers. And he was right. And by the way, it is the view of the Sadducees that actually became mainstream in Judaism. Most Christians don't know that. Stephen Wylan, in his introduction to Judaism, says, the three sections of the Hebrew Bible have a descending order of sanctity. The Torah, that's the books of Moses, the, the law, first five books, the Torah was believed to be the direct word of God spoken to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. The books of the prophets were believed to have been revealed to them in the spirit of prophecy. The message is from God, but the words are the prophet's own words. The writings were believed to have been written in the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by God, but had a human authorship. The books of the prophets and the writings exist for inspirational purposes, but actual Jewish law and practice is derived solely from the five books of the Torah. Close quote. Are you seeing that? That's the issue. The Apostle Paul believed more of the Old Testament than his Jewish accusers. Remember, the Apostle Paul had said to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that is the Christian view. We believe that all the books of the Old Testament are inspired, authoritative, and profitable, unlike Paul's Jewish accusers. And then fourthly, and obviously very much related to that, Paul says that Christianity embraces the hope of the Old Testament. In verse 15, he speaks of having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul basically turns the table on his accusers, and he accuses them of basically not having the courage of their convictions. He says, you know, you accept that these things are spoken of in Scripture, but you've put me on trial for having the audacity to believe that it is actually true. That's why I'm here, Paul says, because I actually believe what the Old Testament says about the resurrection. I believe that all people Everywhere, both the just and the just, will one day be resurrected to stand in the flesh before the judgment seat of God. Now, of course, Paul had spoken about this before. He preached about it to the Greeks on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul says, history is hurtling towards a resurrection. When every person who has ever lived will be resurrected in the flesh to stand before God in judgment and to give a final reckoning. This judgment will be overseen by a man whom God has appointed, the God-man, Jesus Christ, whom God attested by raising him from the dead. So history will come to an end. There will be a final reckoning. And Jesus Christ himself will determine who moves forward into the eternal kingdom and who does not. I'm on trial today for believing in that, Paul says, despite the fact that this reality is clearly spoken of in the Old Testament. Did not the prophet Daniel say, Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Is is that not clearly taught in the Old Testament? Well, of course, some Jews say yes, and some Jews say no, but Paul is saying all Christians believe that without qualification. We believe in everything written in the Old Testament including what it says about the resurrection, the judgment, and eternal life beyond. Thanks be to God. That's Paul's defense before the Roman governor Felix. And of course, it leaves us wondering, what then is the essential difference between Christianity and Judaism? The answer is simple. It all comes down to what we believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I I, I mentioned off off the top, that this is an apologetic issue. And I realize maybe it'd be helpful to uh, define our terms. When we talk about apologetics, we're talking about making a defense. So we're not saying uh, that you have to apologize for Christianity, like, oh, I'm so sorry. We do believe in a final judgment. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is to defend, to define and defend what Christianity is. And in order to do that, you have to understand your surrounding culture. And so for the Apostle Paul, obviously that meant understanding Judaism, explaining how Christianity was was similar and dissimilar to Judaism. As I said, that was the most important apologetic issue in Christianity for the first couple hundred years. We're engaged, though, in the same practice. Uh, we've got B2 again tonight. B2 is our in-house leadership training program. We're going through uh, a unit on... Uh, doctrine and teaching, and we're talking actually about evangelism, getting into apologetics. One of the assignments for our B2 uh, members is going to be to study another religion that is active in Aurelia. And and by the way, you know post-COVID, even pre-COVID, but post-COVID, every religion is now active in Aurelia. Just to study other religions so that we can make a defense of Christianity with respect to their particular interests and claims. This is part of evangelism. Here we see the Apostle Paul modeling how this is done. And it's interesting. No matter who you're talking to, what you end up talking about is the person and work of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus. If you're talking to a Muslim, they believe some stuff about Jesus. Interestingly, they believe that Jesus is going to officiate the final judgment. Did you know that? So you don't have to defend that. Paul had to make that argument with the Sadducees. You don't have to make that argument. Your Muslim friend already believes that Jesus is going to officiate the final judgment. What they don't believe is that he actually died on the cross and rose again, and they don't believe that he is fully God. So you'll need to know how to defend those things. When you talk to your Hindu friends, they don't have any problem with you saying that Jesus is God. They think everybody's God. They might think you're God, right? Like There's hundreds and thousands of Hindu gods, and it's not like they're all from the past, just a couple of years ago, a a guy who was really active in Hinduism, had had died and stuff, was declared to be a god. So you come to them and say, well, Jesus is God. They're like, good for you. Have fun with that. What, What they don't believe is that there's one creator God to whom we're all accountable. They don't believe that Jesus is uniquely God and man. And they don't believe that he is ultimately the mediator between God and humanity And they certainly don't believe that you'll stand before Jesus at the end of your life and give an account, so you'll have to talk about those things. So you have to know. Paul knows Judaism. Paul understands how important it is for everyone listening to him to know exactly who Jesus Christ is, right? Your secular friends, even, you know, they think they don't have a religion. Of course they do. They think that Jesus was an interesting teacher or a doer of good works. Okay. Okay. You'll have to start there and and build up. But no matter who you're talking to, eventually it comes down to the person and work of Jesus. Who is he? And so that's what Paul is found talking to Felix about just a few days later, as Felix himself begins to grapple with the implications of Paul's speech. Look at Acts 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's the issue, isn't it? Felix understood that. Felix understood that to figure out who was right and who was wrong in this particular case that he was ruling on would require him to make a decision about the claims of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said some absolutely spectacular things. Jesus said, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life.'" No one comes to the Father except through me. That's going to be a problem for your Hindu friends. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That's going to be a problem for your Muslim friends. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's going to be a problem for your Jewish friends. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's going to be a problem for your atheist friends. And Felix understood that if all of that is true, then Christianity really is the way. And if that's true, then when Judaism forked away, they cut themselves off from God. And if we fork away, then we cut ourselves off from God. Felix understood that. I wonder if we still do today. The Christian church is often lacking clarity on this issue. We need more courageous spokespersons like R.C. Sproul. He put the matter very plainly. He said, if you say Jesus is not the Messiah and I say Jesus is the Messiah, one of us is wrong. One of us is against God at that point. If Jesus is not the Messiah, we who worship Him are idolaters in the extreme. If Jesus is the Messiah. Those who reject him are rejecting the only Son of God and calling him a false prophet, and the consequences of that are eternal. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now, we don't say amen gleefully to that, but we do say it resolutely. Let us be clear that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was the sermon preached at the beginning of the book of Acts. And that is the defense being given now here at the end of the book of Acts. That is Christianity 101. And it does not change. And it must not change. And by God's grace, it will not change. Jesus is the way. The truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. So if you're sitting here today and you're hearing this, and you have never been reconciled to your Creator through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then come. The Spirit and the bride say come. Come unto Jesus and be saved. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for all of these foundational stories that are helping us afresh in the challenges that we're facing today. Lord, once again, we are having to make a defense for the things that we believe, and once again, that will require us to be absolutely clear in terms of the identity and unique worth of the person of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we want to thank you that the nations are coming to Aurelia we want to thank you, Lord, that we won't have to go on a mission trip anymore to speak to a Hindu person or a Sikh person or a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim. Lord, all we'll have to do is be willing to have conversations at the gas station, at the grocery store, and with the neighbor across the street. And when we do, help us to be clear. Give us the words to say. And above all, help us to point to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray, amen.